Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, and we're broadcasting from the West Coast, usually a sunny West Coast today, not so sunny. But I am beyond, beyond, beyond thrilled to be joined by author, TV writer, director, producer, showrunner extraordinaire, and an incredibly funny, funny, funny woman, Nell Scovell. So thank you, Nell, for being a part of the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's good this is um, not uh, videotaped if it's for beautiful people. Um, I'm <laughs> thrilled that it's not. People. I've written for lots of beautiful people. I'm currently with uh, little slippers on my feet, so I'm thrilled that it is not live and there's no <laughs> video. Um, I wanted first, I had discovered you a long time ago, and I remember reading your Vanity Fair piece when you first talked about your experience uh, with David Letterman and in TV and, you know, obviously read the book, which I love called just the funny parts that every woman will read and identify and shake their head about. And every man should read so they can understand why every woman is shaking their head. Um, (laughs) Do you, I just wanted to. Lots of juicy tidbits about the Simpsons and NCIS and lots of manly shows. (laughs) What would talk? I just wanted you just to briefly talk because the book is coming out or is out right now in paperback. So everyone can get it again if they haven't discovered it already and you should get it. Were you nervous about writing this book? And can you just tell a little bit about the book as well? So everybody's listening can know why I love it so much. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, I'm always stumped when people say, why did you write a memoir? Because the answer is always, well, if I didn't do it, who would? Um, but <laughs> the the truth is, you know, I've I've had a quiet but unusual career, and um, I've had a seat at the table when a lot of pop culture uh, was getting made, and I realized, you know, if I didn't speak up and talk about um, my experiences, then they would um, pass unnoticed. So, you know, we have these great books from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Amy Schumer and Mindy Kaling, but they're all performers. You know, I was a, I was a writer uh, early in my career. Jay Leno thought I should do stand-up, but, you know, I just didn't have the performing gene. Um, but this is my story for all the funny people who don't want to be in front of the camera. <laughs> I just thought it was incredibly, incredibly brave to be able to write that. And I was wondering, cause you name names, but not in a salacious way. It was just, to me, it felt very fact-based when you were telling your stories. Were you worried at all when you were quote unquote naming names and, and telling your story that there would be blowback or the kind of reaction that you would get? I thought, I, as I was reading, I just thought it was so incredibly strong. And I, and it was such a good thing for other women who have been through similar circumstances to be able to read. I felt like it was such an empowering book. Oh, thanks. No, I my background was in journalism before I became a TV writer. I was writing for Spy Magazine, 
and Vanity Fair and um, the Boston Globe. And so, you know, I knew that truth is a defense and um, I was careful. I really felt, um, and by the way, I feel like I, I also like gave people credit when, when I could, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I realized, you know, you go into this thing and you think, I'm going to get back at all these people and you start writing and you really think, oh, no, I just want to praise the people who were nice to me. Um, and I even made this T-shirt, which I've never had the guts to wear, that says, I'm writing a memoir and you're not in it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Wait, there's still time. Yeah, it just seems like that's the meanest thing you could do to someone. But I did have a story early in my career, back in 1988, when I was working on this reboot of the Smothers Brothers show, which was on CBS. And, and I was assaulted by the head writer. I was sexually assaulted. And I never spoke about it. I never wrote about it. And um, I wanted to include that in the book because... You know, I think there's a tendency when you're a younger uh, woman or person that you look at someone who's been successful and you think, well, nothing bad ever happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's just not true. No, it's I when the Me Too stories were coming out, I kept telling men because they're like, oh, is it really that common? I said, if you ask a woman, she will tell you a story. And if you ask that woman twice, she will tell you two of her stories and yeah. three of her stories and four of her stories. I, I remember when I was working for the CIA, I was shocked and appalled by how often sexual harassment was happening and the type of comments that were happening all the time. And I had, you know, some bosses that were you know, borderline lechy, but I'm giving borderline as them a little leeway and a little credit because it was totally inappropriate and really grotesque. And I realized just how common it is everywhere. You don't hear about it there because it's a secret society. Right. But, but it's so important and everybody has. And I remember being younger thinking, I don't want to start trouble. I What did I do to bring it on? And I think so many women have those thoughts because that's just sort of endemic in how how we're brought up and the culture. And so books like yours really help to, to shake that. And I think it gives women that power to say, you know, this has happened to her and look at everything she's accomplished. And I, that's why I thought it was just so powerful. Well, you know, even after it happened, as I was walking away, um, I knew I'd been manipulated and taken advantage of. And I, I never did the, like, I was so stupid. How could I have put myself in that position and uh, I really hope what other women reading it take away is it's not your fault. Yep. And and uh, and I also made it funny. I hope he had a toupee that factors into it. And, and that was kind of delightful in the middle of this horrible thing. Toupees are always funny. I yeah. had... Uh, they're always hilarious. I had a horrible ex-boyfriend that I discovered late in the relationship was wearing a toupee. And anytime I like think about the relations, I'm like, oh, he was such a dick, but he had a horrible toupee. And that always delights me. I'm like, I will leave. I left that relationship at least knowing that. It's funny because yeah. you wrote a piece about James Comey talking about, I think it was the similarities between what he felt and the ideas of feeling safe and me too. And I thought it was such an interesting parallel that talking about how Comey wasn't weak, he wasn't, he was 
you know, he was in a job that he loved and his harassment compared to what women go through. Right. Well, that was specifically he had a private dinner at the White House with Donald Trump where the help kept mysteriously disappearing. And I was reading about it and it just felt like so many, you know, meetings I'd had with producers where, you know, let's meet in the hotel and get a drink. And and you're just like, oh, please, can we do this anywhere else? And um, he he's talking about how like, the president's telling, saying things that he doesn't believe, but he doesn't want to contradict him. And that's that's what happens is you get um, when you're someone else is in a powerful position, they take control. It's funny. I had when I was reading that article, I was thinking about a time I had a, a boss again at the agency who always wanted to meet later in the evening. So people were leaving and it was always me in his office. And I always it was the same thing. I'm like, can't anybody stay? Can't anybody stay? Yep. And eventually an assistant kind of caught on because I think it was his MO and she would always come in and then she would always be like, oh, and your wife called. Oh, are you picking up your kids today? And it was, I think she did it to sort of like shake him out of his like lechitude. Yeah. That's not a word, but you know, just, <laughs> we'll go with lechitude. But that's what it reminded me of. You know, you're all alone in that feeling. And it's, I, I thought it was such a timely way of, of telling that story. Oh, good. What, what I also, I, when I was reading your book, I didn't realize that you wrote for the White House Correspondents' Dinner and for Obama. Yes. I think that was starting in, I want to say, 2011. And um, yeah, for five years. Uh, and that was this chance meeting. I, I did some writing for both Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. And um, the president was going to Facebook and I had written a bunch of jokes for someone to deliver. And they were they roasted him a little. And um, I remember someone at Facebook saying, now we want to honor the president, president not roast him. <laughs> but meanwhile, Cheryl thought one was very funny and funny enough to tell John Favreau, the speechwriter. Yeah. And uh, he sent me an email saying, wait, could the president tell this joke? It was about being... Um, you know, how many Facebook followers he had. And if he had half a million more, he'd be as popular as SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Obama was so good at being self-deprecating. And sure enough, like, I, it, I think it even made it onto into the San Francisco Chronicle, him telling this joke. Um, and then that was just a few weeks before the correspondence dinner. And, and, uh, Fabs then wrote to me and said, will you submit some jokes? Wait a minute. I love that you called him Fabs. Well, That's yeah. That's a great nickname. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Um, but that was the infamous dinner, 2011, when when they did that run about uh, Trump and The Apprentice. And um, I, I, for the record, I had nothing to do with that run. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember hearing... I wouldn't do what was your favorite joke that he told? And were there any jokes that you wrote that they turned down that you're like, that is a missed opportunity because that is a hot joke that I know would fly? Yeah, I think, well, the, there are a couple. My the favorite one for correspondence dinner was um, 
he said, uh, the president says, I even let down my key core constituency, movie stars. Just the other day, day Matt Damon said he was disappointed in my performance. <laughs> well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau and right back at you, buddy. That's a great joke. <laughs> and uh, what's funny is Chad called me the day, the Saturday morning after the rehearsal, and he said, I... He said, I, I don't know if the president's going to do that joke. He, he thinks it might be too mean. And I, I wrote back, I saw the Adjustment Bureau last week. Truth is a defense. <laughs> but I think um, my favorite joke actually I wrote for the president was um, from the Al Smith dinner when he was running against Mitt Romney. And he says, um, Mitt and I have a lot in common. We both have unusual names. Actually, Mitt is his middle name. I wish I could use my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love jokes that um, require deep cultural knowledge. Like everyone laughed because we all have that information. And the only downside was, I think Sean Hannity tweeted later that night, uh, the Hussein joke was pretty funny, I have to admit. And you're then like, I, I thought, oh, I gave Sean Hannity a moment of pleasure. You're like, oh, you're like, can I take it back? I know. So, and then I'll read one joke that he did not do that I wrote for the final dinner, um, which I think would have gotten a big laugh. Uh, I turned 50 while in office, which means I had to have my first colonoscopy. And guess what they found? Mitch McConnell. That guy can obstruct anything. That's a genius joke. <laughs> you need to, have you tweeted this joke? It's genius. <laughs> well, it's in the book along with the I It is in the book. Yeah, you know, like, uh, welcome. I know uh, many of you came tonight to see the charismatic leader of North America, but Justin Trudeau couldn't make it. Ah, <laughs> uh, Justin. <laughs> It's fun making fun of the most powerful person on the planet. <laughs> well, he his timing was also so impeccable. It was just just beautiful timing. And I loved seeing him deliver jokes because he always landed the punchline. Yeah, I quote, um, I'm friends with Albert Brooks. And I saw him the day after one of these dinners. And he said to me, uh, he's, Obama's got Johnny Carson's timing. And, he, you know, he does. He, he'll repeat a word and he'll enjoy the moment. It, it, yeah, he was unbelievable. It's speaking of Albert Brooks, he wrote one of my favorite movies, Defending Your Life. It's one the of best. my the best. Like I love that it's one of those movies I always say my husband will watch Shawshank Redemption if it comes on. It's like a magnetic pull for me. It's it's an <laughs> Albert Brooks movie. It's like, "Oh, Defending Your Life's on." I'm like, "Oh, it's on. I I found it. I sensed it. It was going to come on. I have to watch it." Um, yeah, it's, just, it's like this perfect essay about life and death and making the most of our time on the planet. And then it's super funny. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's like, it's one of those wickedly funny, it hurts your gut kind of funny, which I love. And he's just so smart. I was going to, um, back to the correspondence dinner. What did you think about Michelle Wolf? I know you've talked about in some interviews, but I wanted just to discuss that now. And then also just the new take that they're doing for this upcoming dinner. Right. Well, you know, she fell in line with, with all the other uh, correspondent uh, court jesters. And, um, you know, like everyone, 
I love some jokes, didn't love some jokes. I thought it was really trumped up. You know, the, the media loves a cat fight. And Michelle Wolf, you know, attacked Mitch McConnell's neck. She, you know, she went after a bunch of GOP men, but the, you know, the fight they, they chose to highlight was between her and, and uh, Sarah Sanders. Um, Which there wasn't an insult to her appearance at all in any of those jokes. No, there wasn't. But, the, you know, the, the, the Republicans are such snowflakes. It's ri- ridiculous. And, you know, as for losing the, um, the comedian, can I tell you, I always thought it was kind of weird that they did it. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, did you always think it was appropriate or do you think that they always had the comedian in order to kind of give it sort of that glitzness of it? Because they kind of, you know, the East Coast, they liked having that Hollywood aspect and that shine to the event. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, shoot. I I remember reading the history. Was it Bob Hope did it once and then it went over big. And so then they decided from then on they they would have a humorist. But but it really, when you think about it, it's, it's you know, for serious journalism. And there's yeah. always that weird moment, you know, the president does his jokes and then he has to do this turn about the importance of freedom of speech and, you know, the press around the world. And I think especially in these days, I mean, after Khashoggi, I, uh, I think it's appropriate not to have a comedian this year. It's, it's interesting because I've been reading, you know, sort of both sides as as a person who always appreciates the funny and I always, I think it's always important to have that. It, there was something about not having it this year that didn't, didn't upset me as much as I thought it would. Um, what upset me was that Trump's taking credit for it. And that that's the part that like angered me because it had really nothing to do with him as opposed to, well, it does, but as opposed, not in the way that he wants to think it has something to do with him, but in terms of, you know, what's going on with, you know, the freedom of the press and, and yeah. really the attack on the First Amendment, more or less. Right. And it's also, what are you taking credit for that, that a, a shift? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, but well, cause he don't get slammed. I've learned that. That's one thing I've learned. Don't get in his head. <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy. And also, you know, I've, you know, he attacked her and she, I, anyway, I, it, the whole thing was, was upsetting to me. And, in terms of the text, I also felt like she, I was gonna ask your opinion on this too. Like I felt like she got more shit than other male comedians would have gotten. And I thought it was just, I don't know if it was maybe the temperament of the climate right now or what's going on, but I felt like she got a she got a bigger rash of shit than other comedians have gotten in the past. And I don't know if it's just because we were so heightened, but I thought, oh, that's really interesting. The attacks that you're getting. And then all of a sudden it was to your point, women, you know, pitted against women because that's what we want to see. And it really had nothing to do with that. But that created a more drama and more people that they could, you know, they could just throw at, oh, look at this liberal comedian. Yeah. And she, you know, I, I love her because she's not, um, she's not like sweet and smooth and non-threatening, you know, she's in your face and, and, uh, the um, but you know some people say Trump doesn't have a sense of humor and and I ag- agree he's kind of missing that any sort of humor that requires empathy or shared cultural knowledge which he doesn't seem to have but I do think he has Schadenfreude I do think he he thinks it's <laughs> funny 
Like, remember when he posted that video of a golfer hitting a ball and then Hillary? Uh, of Hillary of, I was going to say of, of hitting Hillary with, I was like, of course, yeah. that's what he finds funny. Yeah, that's what he finds funny. But he, you know, he lacks any introspection and any self-awareness. And so, I, yeah, I think humor just kind of goes past him. I always thought he had maybe like a three-year-old sense of humor, but, you know, somebody it, like the ball hitting Hillary. And like, of course he finds that funny. Right. If someone gets hurt, it's hurt. funny. He's like, yeah. oh, that's that I get. I get the physical comedy. That's that's hilarious. But yeah. do you think now there is a time because I've been reading there's been so many articles talking about there's that Esquire article that um, you wrote about just about surviving Trump. And there's different and there's been other <laughs> articles similar talking about, you know, whether humor has a place in this political climate. And some oh, people right. are saying. I interviewed Lawrence Gonzalez. Gonzalez, yes. Fantastic, fascinating guy. He wrote a book called Deep Survival, which everyone should read. And um, he he thought, his argument was that it's dangerous to joke about this guy because he's very powerful and he's very dangerous. And if we declaw him, if we make him into a cartoon, uh, we we lessen that feeling of danger. What did you think of that? You know, I get his point, but for for me, I find that that's humor. I find comfort in humor, and I find like it's it's sort of an equalizer, and it takes the valve off a little bit because I couldn't I couldn't really withstand living at a hundred all the time. Cause every time I turn on the news and read something that he's tweeted or something that he's done, I become my rate. I become my rate, you know, reading about Betsy DeVos. I, yeah. everybody in that administration literally infuriates me what's going on with Khashoggi. It's, it should be a time that we should be, you know, where I said, you know, I'm running out of pillows to really scream into at this point. <laughs> I'm like, I need another one. Where's another pillow? Because I'm, I'm literally, I, I don't uh, know where. To five do. pillows. I'm screaming in. <laughs> I'm going to Costco now. If you could just back up a truck, I'm going to need those really soon. Um, and so I don't know what to, for me. I don't know what to do with that other than to make a joke. And that to me is my defense. And that's my protection. And I think a lot of people sort of turn to humor for that comfort in a way to not rationalize by any stretch of the imagination, but to help them sort of endure this, this journey that none of us wants to be on. None of us wanted to get on this horrible, you know, shit show of a ride, but we're all in and we're locked in. Yeah. So the only way to do it, you know, for me is, is through humor because I, I need, I need a release. Yeah, and I, I'm sure. I mean, I watch John Oliver every week. I don't think I've missed an episode. And yes. uh, um, but I do think we're the humor's different now. There's there's an edge and an anger that you know I will be happy when that's over. It's funny. You, I'm seeing it more now, and I'm sure you are too on Twitter. And that was another place where I, if you don't follow Nell on Twitter, you should because she's. <laughs> hilarious and you're biting and you're so smart. I think with your, your tweets and I don't find them to be, I mean, there is, there's so much really hate and that, you know, acid, that battery yeah. acid that goes back and forth, but which is now more than ever. And it's funny cause I was speaking on Twitter. It's, it's interesting to see. I've been getting more feedback. Anytime I, I get the most sort of hate tweets when I talk about, 
uh, sexism and misogyny. I can <laughs> I can bash on Trump, but if I bash on Don Jr. for saying something really shitty about women, I get inundated with hate. And so I, I'm always like taking pause going, I wonder why that's the thing that's making, that's pushing people over. I'm like, really, you're really that upset that I called him out? I mean, that to me is sort of like a universal, like we all kind of know they're all, they're all kind of well, this is my, true. My philosophy is I'm a blocker, not a fighter. <laughs> so the second anyone says anything really nasty, they just get blocked. I used to, it's funny, I didn't use to block because I used to think, oh, I don't want people to know that I saw their thing. And so I'll just ignore it. Like when you're little and your parents say, just ignore them or they're just jealous. I'm like, hey, they're not jealous. There's nothing, they're not jealous. Me, I'm cool with blocking them. And so now it's, there's a freedom of like blocking with the band. And I'm like, and I will block you and I will block you. And it's delightful. Well, in fact, someone questioned a punctuation I used and in a very rude way. And I just immediately blocked them. And then later in the day, I said, wait a sec, I did it right. And I looked up the, you know, the the rule and I screenshot it and I went to post it and I couldn't find them because I'd blocked them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, isn't it amazing how it kind of takes over and you're like, I'm going to show this random person on the interwebs that I am right. That's something I would absolutely do. I'd find a definition. I would screen on them like and in your face. I'm sure nobody cares except for me. And I'm like, I showed him. And the yeah. guy's like, he's like, I'm, I'm past you now. I'm like, no, 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 no. But I'm, sh- I'm showing you, I'm in your face. You will now prove that you will now say that you're wrong. And he's probably like, no, I'm on to the next person. Now. I mean, I, you had talked in your book a little bit that you were going to, with midterms coming that you would even go out and help, you know, help can possible candidates. punch Katie Hill won in California. I was, oh, thank God. We have yeah, some good ones. California is not really anywhere else. I feel like we we've got so many great, great, you know, leaders out of here, you know, from Swalwell and Ted Lou. You know, we've got yeah. some good ones in Schiff. Like, I'm like, we're, we're here for you, America. Yeah, no, that's and you know, Beto was was uh and, and Stacey Abrams were both two that I was really hoping would go the other way. Um and so what? I want to Gillum too. Oh, of course, of course. So my new my new plan though is to move to Wyoming because then my vote will be worth three and a half times what it's worth now. <laughs> so that's my new plan. How do you think I'll fit in <laughs> in Wyoming? Oh, as well as I would fit in. <laughs> in Driggs, Idaho. Someone told me to check out Driggs, Idaho. That it's beautiful there. I'm sure for me though, I like my nature like on a screensaver or through. Don't, don't you think if we just moved like a hundred thousand liberals, Californians to Idaho, you could start making a difference. That could be a whole like new mission, a new company. Like we'll, we'll liberalize you and we just move them. And then we go from state to state. Maybe, maybe it should be a new reality show. Hmm. We need to trademark this quick. Get on the phone. Here we do. Purple state, and you bring blue people into red states. Oh, the purple uh, state. Yeah. All right. Yes, copyrighted. All I'm right. copyrighted right now. If anybody's listening, they this has been owned. We have copyrighted. I've talked to the Writers Guild right now on this. At this you very just, second. just have to say copyright three times, and you're good. Copyright, copyright, copyright. It's like Beetlejuice, <laughs> but better. 
Are there any candidates you're excited about for 2020? Like what would be some of your perfect tickets that you'd like to see? Oh, well, I'm happy Sherrod Brown is talking about running. I think, you know, the grandfather from Ohio, um, maybe teaming up with uh, Kamala Harris would oh, be sexy. Uh, I think Chris Murphy, I, I really admire him. Um, I don't know if he's thinking of, of taking a shot. You know, one thing... Um, I wish the the Democrats would clamp down on his Bernie Sanders and Ugh. don't get to be an independent and then talk about running um, in our election. I, I do, how that happened, I will never understand. Uh, I'm so over. I I'm sure he's a lovely human, and he actually no, looks he's so not. Much, he's not. He is uh, okay. Not. Yeah, he's well, a fraud. Even, yeah. Well, he kind of looks like my father-in-law, which always. It's kind of weird to me. And I'll send you a private message with a picture. You can't show it to anybody, but it legitimately, they look like they were separated at birth. But and I'm always like, oh God, it's it's burning. No, it's my father-in-law. Okay, it's all good. Um, and finally, we took a picture. We put them together. We're like, look, you guys do look like you're separated at birth. And he was like, yeah, we kind of do. Yeah, I want him out. I want him gone. He had his chance. I'm ready to move on. I think we're over Bernie. I don't, the impact that he had before was, I'm done. I think it's not just that he had his chance. He ruined Clinton's chance. And I hope, you know, all the Bernie bros who were angry at Clinton because she didn't want to ban all fracking are are now enjoying the drilling in the Arctic and the selling off of public lands and, you know, the the leaving of the Paris Accords, which is all thanks to Bernie. Yeah. And they can move to West Virginia and, and take up mining. I mean, it's. It's so, I mean, it's so absolutely ridiculous. And I'm, I am hoping he doesn't run again. I have a feeling he, do you think he will? I think there's money in it for him. I think that's what he's out for. He's out for his own fame and legacy and money. Oh, I just want him to iron his shirt. That would be lovely. <laughs> I'm always, I was always like, just, you know, make it look like you didn't just wake up. I, I'm not all about looks, but that's all I need. And I'll be so happy. I want him to go down in the Mueller probe. I think, oh. you know, Ted Devine and all that. Tad Devine, what's his name? Oh, now, now the name eludes me. But yes. Oh, he was a campaign manager, but he's also tied up in all the Russia stuff. All the Russia stuff, yeah. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. Oh, did you? I was. For Christmas's indictments. All I want. I would like to have eight nights of indictments for Hanukkah. I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) Just throwing it out there. Each night can be a new one. I'm like, oh, we we had some good ones so far, but that would be, that would make up. Those are right now, indictments are my birthday wishes. If I have an eyelash wish, I use it for indictments, shooting stars. They're all indictment wishes. I think if everybody (laughs) does that, we can just, it'll put the energy out there. Um, I also just, I was hoping you can talk a little bit more. We're almost done just about your, the book is coming out, just the funny parts in, in, uh, I was going to say soft cover, but that's not right. Paperback. Paperback. Thank you. The word literally flew out of my mouth and I'm like, it's not a hard cover. It's a soft cover. And I'm thinking it's like a little lamb, but it's. No, soft cover sounds classy. Okay. Kind of, you know, low. Okay, so it's paperback and soft cover, and it 
it didn't it come out today in paperback soft cover? It did for all your Christmas and holiday needs. It's my, I was so excited. I was reading it again. I was taking my little notes and as a theater major who never had to study or take notes, it was such an exciting time. I'm like, this is what kids did in college that didn't study theater. I was so, <laughs> I, I was like, what is this? I'm studying. This is amazing. It's, such a wonderful book and I'm actually giving it to my niece to read as well. She's, she's like a budding feminist and it makes me very happy. And I want her to read this cause I think it'll, I think it's really important and I encourage people to go out and buy it and read it. And it's truly, I say it's great for women, but I think it's even better for men to read as well because I, I think you reveal a truth that's out there that everybody is seeing, whether it's, you know, for me, it was relevant because of my government experience and also some of the work I've done in the commercial sector. It's obviously relevant in what's going on with Hollywood and Moonves and, you know, Weinstein and everybody well, else. I mean, the, the, the Leslie Moonves story is connected to the book in that um, I had worked at Late Night with David Letterman and had quit the job because it was such a hostile work environment. And there was rampant sexual favoritism and harassment. And um, in 2009, if you recall, David Letterman goes on air and announces, I have had sex with women who work for me, for me, not with me, employees. And, you know, that was turned out to be just the tipping point for my own feminism where I finally really had to speak out and start shining a light on some of these experiences I had had. And um, at the time, I just kept saying they need to investigate. We don't know how many women he slept with. He had a bed in his office. Was it five? Was it 50? Was it 100? You know, and um, he didn't even get a slap on the wrist from CBS. He got nothing. I, I, he probably got more money. And he remained at the network for another six years. And, you know, now all the Moonvest story comes out. And I really wish someone would go back and open up the, the Letterman case because it's so clear his boss, you know, wasn't about to investigate someone no. else for these charges. No, he was, it was the, it was, he was doing the exact same thing. And what was even... I just remember when the Letterman thing came out and I, people were like, oh, I can't believe this. And I said, oh, in my head, I thought, well, nothing's going to happen. People are going to be like, boys will be boys and right. that'll be that. And I had hoped something would happen because I think women were just watching this appalled again, not shocked because I don't think any of us were, any woman, any woman was shocked, but I wanted something to happen. I, I, we, I was desperate. I think we were I think so yeah. many of us just wanted something, but then people were making jokes about it. And once people started making jokes about it, it was done. There was, there was nothing that was going to happen because they were just making light of, of what women go through every single day. Right. No. And then, and there's this misunderstanding about um, any sexual harassment in the workplace and, and, the policy at both CBS and Worldwide Pants is if you have the ability to hire or fire or offer benefits to someone, you cannot explicitly or implicitly, you cannot 
make sexual advances to them. And that's what was happening left and right. You know, the woman who he Letterman admitted he was had a long time affair with, you know, while he was married with child, she would go on vacations with them. She was appearing on the show constantly and someone figured out she probably made an extra quarter of a million dollars. So when I read about Moonves and how transactional some of these, you know, that's the his relationships were, you know, it's so I just hope and hope some um, media reporter goes and, and takes a look at that again. Hey, Ronan Farrow, if you're listening. Yeah. Now, Ronan's busy. We can do something like Brian Stetler. What's he up to? Yeah, he could do it, too. I, I'm convinced that if anybody sees Ronan in a bar, we just need to buy him free drinks. If I ever see you at a bar, I'm going to buy you a drink, whatever you want, even the good stuff, not not the cheap stuff. I'll get you something good. Um, I just want to thank you again so much. It's, to me, as as a as a woman who appreciates humor and has had it as part of their life and performed improv and just oh. looks up to funny women. It was such, it's such a joy for me to be able to talk to you because I'm such a fan of your work and your voice. And I think it's such a needed voice, especially now more than ever. So I'm so appreciative of you coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> it's my pleasure. And everybody go out and buy the book, just the funny parts that's out in paperback and soft cover. And if you want to hear this podcast, you can visit deepstateradionetwork.com and you can support our work, um, my work and my colleagues' work on Deep State Radio by becoming a member. Members receive early access to all the podcasts, one-on-one newsmaker interviews, discounts on Deep State Radio swag. It's the holiday season. You can get cool mugs and fleeces and all that kind of good, fun stuff. The daily newsletter, more. And through the end of the year, what the part I love the most is that Deep State Radio is donating 10% of all the proceeds to the Malala Fund and the International Relief Fund. So you can do that. You can also gift, give the gift of a Deep State Radio membership. If you want to give the gift of snark, you can do it through the Deep State Radio membership. And you can follow Nell on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Now, what's your, your handle? I want to make sure we get it right. Oh, it's at Nellsco, N-E-L-L-S-C-O. Someone stole, my, someone stole my actual name, so I had to go with that. <laughs> okay, we're going to find them after this, and then we're going to get online, <laughs> and we're going to give you back your name. You can follow me. I'm at CIA Spy Girl, and you can follow Deep State Radio Network on Twitter and on Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, you want to tell me what you thought about the show, especially if it's nice comments, feel free to tweet me, and I will hit you back. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.